the ruling itself is only binding upon China and the Philippines. Correct. But as you said, this is the first ever uh, ruling on on 121.3. Uh, what exactly, in your opinion, does this mean for other countries like the U.S., Japan, Brazil, France, etc., who have features that presumably now do not meet this definition of of a sustained human community, but who are not technically bound by this ruling? Well, in, in terms of precedent, <clears throat> I think the first point I would make is that if the nine-dash line and China's claims pursuant to it are illegal, as against the Philippines, which is what this award says, then logic tells us that the nine-dash line is every bit as illegal when it is applied by China against Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, and any other coastal states on the South China Sea. It cannot be illegal against the Philippines and legal against any other state. So the first precedent, first important precedent is that if the Philippines has won, so have Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, and other states with coasts on the South China Sea. China cannot, in good faith, say any longer that the nine-dash line is lawful as applied against Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, or any other state. It's inconsistent with, indeed it's contradictory, of the Law of the Sea Convention, and there is no basis in history any event, in any event, but the convention prohibits historical history-based claims, even if they had a good history-based claim. So it is illegal, pure and simple, and it is illegal against anyone, even though they are not parties to the case. Now, one would expect that Malaysia, Indonesia, Vietnam, and others, which have protested the nine-dash line from the very beginning, will now be emboldened in their claims and will be less likely to acquiesce in China's usurpation of 85 to 90 percent of their own exclusive economic zones and continental shelves. And I think where this will inevitably lead, and it may take some time, but it will inevitably lead to a negotiated settlement involving all the states in the region, not just the Philippines and China, but all of them. Because China is faced with a, with a, with a challenge now. It, it can opt either to impose its will against all of its neighbors, not just the Philippines, by force, because, let's face it, it's big enough and powerful enough to do that if that is what it chooses to do. But if it does that, it will pay a very heavy price. And, of course, we've talked before about reputational damage and damage to the image and concomitant loss of influence, prestige around the world. But I think the most immediate impact is if China persists in pursuing flagrantly illegal claims to virtually all of the South China Sea, it will engender uh, a, a very uh, bitter 
response from all of its neighbors, not just not just the Philippines. Now, when I say a bitter response, I, I'm not talking about use of physical force or threat of physical force. That's the farthest thing from my mind. It's the farthest. It should be the farthest thing from anybody's mind. But all of the countries in the region will now be emboldened to stand up and insist on their lawful rights and, and refuse to acquiesce in China's usurpation of all of these rights. And I think they'll be supported by their populations, which will demand no less of their governments. And this will eventually drive China and all of the parties to a negotiated solution because in the end, China will come to the conclusion, at least I believe, that it serves China's interest better to reach an agreement, a mutually acceptable agreement with all of its neighbors that border the South China Sea, that China will see that that is a more favorable outcome for China than to maintain a permanent state of hostility with all of its neighbors with the attendant insecurity and instability that will affect uh, behavior uh, in the South China Sea for, for uh, a lengthy period of time. And, and I think they're already moving toward that. I think that denouncing the um, arbitrators, denouncing the tribunal, denouncing the award, denouncing the Philippines is the first step in a negotiation. Uh, <clears throat> now, you asked about other precedents, yeah. and I focused on the nine-dash line. So um, do you want me to continue, or have I already abused well, the no, privilege you've given me to speak here? Of course not. Mm -hmm. I, we have seen a number of uh, speculative pieces, uh, both before and after the ruling, on, on what this means for those like Japan with Okinatori, the U.S. with Helen Baker Islands. And the counterargument is yes, but – uh, you know, there is a precedent here, but the ruling is only binding upon the two parties. Um, right. That, that's the line you hear from, from yeah. U.S. State Department. That's the line you hear from, from U.S. litigators. Uh, and yet, Article 121.3, as I understand it, is customary international law. It has been declared so by, by various courts. It's treated so by the U.S. And, and everybody else. So at what point does this single precedent about what is an island and what isn't become customary international law that does, in fact, bind the U.S. and Japan and Taiwan, for that matter, who's, who's denounced the case. Well, let me talk first about the South China Sea and then the broader uh, world. Yeah. Um, China and, and Taiwan are the only states with claims to these features in the South China Sea that have claimed more than 12 miles for them. Uh, Malaysia has sovereignty claims over some. Vietnam has sovereignty claims over some. The Phil Philippines as well. Malaysia, Vietnam, and the Philippines have all been uh, uh, united in uh, claiming a maximum of 12 miles for the features over which they claim sovereignty. None of those states claims more than 12 miles. Um, and, I think that the ruling is definitive in regard to the Spratleys and to Scarborough Shoal. Um, an interesting question is how it would be applied in the case of the Paracels. 
where uh, the claimants are Vietnam and China. Uh, legally, it does not apply to the paracels. In fact, it doesn't address the paracels. But, <coughs> pardon me, but it, in interpreting Article 121.3, if that interpretation is correct, I submit it is, and, and whatever it is, it's binding as between the Philippines and China. That's already decided. But if the next arbitral tribunal, if there is one, that is created uh, to assess the entitlements of the various features of the paracels were to follow this precedent in the sense of applying the same criteria. And it might come out with different results, but if it accepted the, the definition and interpretation of Article 121.3 that this Philippines-China tribunal has uh, delivered, then it acquires that interpretation, that definition of Article 121.3 acquires more force. Um, this, this is one ruling by one arbitral tribunal. So it would be an exaggeration for me to say that this is the definitive uh, interpretation of Article 121.3 that applies around the world to all insular features around the world. Uh, that would not be an accurate uh, statement. It's certainly binding as regard to the features that, that are encompassed within this award. So time will tell whether other tribunals, whether the International Court of Justice, the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea, again, other Law of the Sea arbitral tribunals uh, adopt the same interpretation. Now, I think it's very likely that they will. That's a prediction. It's not a, it's not a guarantee uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, those of us who, who spend a good part of our lives studying and working with and applying the Law of the Sea Convention know that this arbitral tribunal is composed of the most preeminent experts on the Law of the Sea that there are anywhere. Um, these are true authorities on the Law of the Sea Convention, and they are very, very distinguished international jurists, and it's impossible to have composed a tribunal that had greater impartiality, objectivity, integrity. Um, so what judges Mensa, Wolfram, Kott, Pavlak, and Professor Soons say about Article 121.3 will generate enormous respect by other judges and arbitrators around the world when they are called upon to apply Article 121.3 in other cases. That doesn't necessarily mean that they will agree 100%, but I think that it is very likely that they will. So the United States has very exaggerated claims on some very, very, very tiny and, and truly uninhabitable features in the middle of the Pacific. Uh, you know them better than I do, Howland and Baker and something else. Now, this 
arbitral award does not apply to those features. It doesn't apply to Okino Torashima, which is a, a, a Japanese feature. But if those features ever came before an arbitral tribunal or an international court, and if those arbitrators or judges were to apply the same definition and interpretation of Article 121.3 as the arbitrators did in Philippines, China, then yes, those features would be considered rocks and they would be determined not to generate entitlements beyond 12 miles. The, the one feature we haven't talked about is Scarborough. Um, I, I assume that, that you were not at all surprised by the finding that China had violated traditional fishing rights of, of Filipino fishermen, but uh, were you a bit surprised by the court's statement that essentially they said they would have found the same had the situation been reversed, had it been Filipino authorities uh, preventing access by Chinese fishermen? At least that's the way I, I, I read the, the, the ruling and, and the release. Um, is the court essentially saying that it's the responsibility of both Beijing and Manila to come up with some form of joint fisheries management at Scarborough Shoal, regardless of sovereignty? I don't think that's what the tribunal is saying, but the first part of your statement I do agree with. The tribunal did say that if the situation had been reversed and if the Philippines had prohibited uh, Chinese fishermen from engaging in their traditional fishing practices at Scarborough Shoal, that would have been a violation uh, of the convention by the Philippines. And in fact, we said that ourselves in our oral pleadings. We said that the rights of the fishermen who have traditionally fished at Scarborough Shoal must be respected under the convention. And that includes uh, Filipino fishermen, Vietnamese fishermen, uh, Chinese and Taiwanese fishermen, all of whom have fished there traditionally. And the, the, the convention makes a distinction uh, between uh, rights in the territorial sea and rights in the exclusive economic zone. There are no traditional rights to fish in the exclusive economic zone beyond 12 miles. That's what makes it exclusive. That's what makes it exclusive, <laughs> exactly. But um, the, the convention itself says that sovereignty in the territorial sea is to be exercised in conformity with other rules of international law. And there is precedent for arbitral tribunals interpreting the law of the sea convention to find that the convention safeguards traditional fishing rights within the territorial sea, whichever state is sovereign over the feature and its territorial sea. Um, you can find some of this in the Mauritius uh, United Kingdom Award, which was issued in 2014. I was uh, part of Mauritius's legal team in that case. The, um, and so uh, we argued on behalf of the Philippines that China's exclusion of uh, traditional 
Filipino fishermen uh, from Scarborough Shoal was a violation of the convention, even if China is ultimately found to be sovereign over Scarborough Shoal and, of course, its adjacent territorial sea. Uh, we pointed out that when uh, the Philippines was actually controlling and administering Scarborough Shoal and the fishing practices, which it was doing for several decades, uh, at least up to April and May of 2012, when China um, forcibly took over Scarborough Shoal, um, that the Philippines respected the traditional fishing rights of Chinese fishermen, Taiwanese fishermen, and Vietnamese fishermen, as was its obligation. Um, by contrast, when China took over the feature, um, again, April and May of 2012, um, they expelled uh, the Philippine um, law enforcement authorities who had been there, and they uh, prevented uh, Filipino fishermen from coming back to fish. And on the one hand, we're, we're talking about very big, uh, abstract um, geopolitical issues here. Um, but in another dimension, this case was about uh, people, regular people. In this case, poor people, fishermen, uh, who live on the western coast of Luzon Island in a number of communities and for, who for generations have earned their living from the sea and particularly from Scarborough Shoal because that's the richest fishing ground anywhere near uh, the, the western Philippine coast in this area. And they were devastated and their families were devastated. And their communities were devastated uh, when China excluded them uh, from 2012 onward from fishing in their normal traditional fishing grounds. Um, <clears throat> there's one more feature that, that I think we need to talk about because there's a bit of confusion about what exactly the ruling means for Mr. Reef. Mm -hmm. um, it's the only one of the features that – uh, was ruled submerged at high tide and therefore a piece of the seabed, but clearly outside of the territorial sea of anything else. And so the tribunal ruled it on the Philippine seabed and that China's occupation of it and construction of the facility there was illegal. Right. But does that mean that the continued occupation of Mr. Freef is illegal? Absolutely. There's nothing confusing about the award Did in the this court regard. Rule China? I mean, the court did not order China to abandon mischief. The court decided that Mischief Reef, as a low tide elevation, cannot lawfully be appropriated by any state. As a low tide elevation, it is, as a matter of law, a part of the seabed. And as a part of the seabed, it is part of the continental shelf of the coastal state which the tribunal found, quite correctly, to be the Philippines because Mischief Reef is approximately 100 nautical miles off the coast of the Philippines. The tribunal further found that Mischief Reef did not fall within any overlapping either territorial sea or exclusive economic zone of any other state. Thus, Mischief Reef 
is part of the continental shelf of the Philippines and only the continental shelf of the Philippines. As such, the Philippines alone has sovereign rights with respect to mischief reef. China's occupation of it without the Philippines' permission is therefore unlawful, and China's construction activities there without the permission of the Philippines is therefore unlawful. This is all in the award, and it's very clear that this is what international law mandates in a situation like this. This is one of the reasons it's very significant that the tribunal found that none of the features in the Spratleys generates a 200-mile entitlement. By virtue of that finding, it could then conclude that Mischief Reef, which is 100 miles from the Philippines, from Palawan, and within the 200-mile entitlement of the, Phil of the Philippines, is not within the entitlements of any other state. As such, Chinese occupation of and activities on Mischief Reef is unlawful. And of course, by continuing to occupy and carry out activities on Mischief Reef, China is day in and day out continuing to violate the convention. So any eventual settlement in order to be in full compliance with this ruling would have to require Chinese abandonment of the facility of mischief? I think that as the attorney for the Philippines handling this case, that I've done my job <laughs> in litigating this case to the point of getting a final award that the Philippines can be very satisfied with. I think the job of negotiating the final settlement of this dispute and all of the related uh, disputes involving the South China Sea uh, should be left to the, the diplomats and to the senior government officials of uh, the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and China to come up with a negotiated settlement that all of them can be at least satisfied with. By definition, a negotiated settlement does not give everything to one party and nothing to the other. You don't get a negotiated settlement that way. Um, a negotiated settlement occurs because all of the parties involved believe that accepting the settlement is better for them than the alternative. So I, I think it's better for me not to indicate what the parameters of an acceptable settlement uh, should be. I'm not involved in the negotiations, and uh, I, I, I don't anticipate being involved in them. Well, that's fair. Um, one more question, uh, because we could keep delving into the If there's only one the more, I hope you ask me about the environmental aspects of the case, but you're f but ask away, whatever okay. you wish. Two more questions. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> First, uh, the environmental questions, they did seem like the home run going in. Everybody, I think, expected uh, with every reason that the court would find that, that China's uh, especially its reclamation work, but also other activities, was a clear violation of its obligations under UNCLOSE to protect the marine environment. Uh, but just, I mean, 
I, to prompt you, I already know that you think this is an enormous win uh, for far more than just the South China Sea. Why is that? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Thank you. Um, the award in this case interprets Articles 192 and 194 and other articles of the convention dealing with the obligation of the state's parties to the convention to preserve and protect the marine environment and the obligations not to pollute the marine environment. Now, as you pointed out, it, 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 it's, it's not difficult to reach the conclusion that when you break apart pristine coral reefs, which are really the life-giving source of the aquatic marine environment, and you take these broken pieces of coral and you make some sort of dust <laughs> out of them, and then you pour it on top of other pristine coral reefs so that you can build runways and barracks and whatever else China has built on top of them, as it has done at, at least seven of these tiny features, low tide elevations and rocks, um, that you're doing massive devastation to the marine environment. Um, the, the, the impact of destroying all of these coral reefs uh, is geometrical because of all of the marine creatures that depend directly or indirectly on the coral. That's an easy one as you pointed out. And in fact, uh, we had every reason to believe that we would be successful on, this, on these claims even before we got the award because the tribunal retained its own independent experts to assess the environmental impacts of China's activities at these various features. Of course, we had our own experts, and we had presented reports and testimony at the oral hearings of these distinguished experts on, the, on uh, marine biology and other aspects of the marine environment. Um, but as is the case in these proceedings, when the tribunal retains its own experts and they prepare reports, their technical reports, they're circulated to the parties for comment. So China would have received the reports not only of our experts, but of the reports prepared by the experts retained by the tribunal. China received them. We received them uh, a couple of months in advance of the issuance of the final award, and we commented on them. But upon reading the reports of the independent experts retained by the tribunal, uh, it was clear that they agreed with our experts at least in terms of all the conclusions. They had, there were some differences, of course, in uh, what they found. But in, in the basic conclusions were the same as our experts in terms of the overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly adverse impact on the marine environment of China's activities. So once we saw what the tribunal's experts had concluded, uh, we were uh, 
virtually certain that the Philippines had prevailed on, on those claims. Of course, again, you wait to see what the award says before you draw your own conclusions. Um, but what makes this significant beyond the South China Sea is not that the destruction of coral reefs is a violation of uh, the obligations to protect and preserve marine environment. That's pretty obvious. But it's the teeth the tribunal put into Articles 192, 194, and the other environmental provisions. If those provisions mean what the tribunal says they mean, and I would say from the text and from the context they do, then they apply to all forms of pollution of the world's oceans and seas, dumping of toxic waste, dumping of plastic bottles, heating the ocean through the emission of greenhouse gases and then acid rain. These provisions are very strong and apply to all forms of marine pollution and potentially against all states, parties to the convention, and probably even other states because they form part of customary international law, to all states that engage in significant pollution of the marine environment. And I think this case will lead to other cases brought by states truly concerned about saving the world's seas and oceans and bringing legal actions against states that ignore or violate their obligations not to pollute the oceans. <laughs>